Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Little strength training incident this week, Lorraine. You know, we've been uh, enthusing to all of our listeners about how important it is. Well, there I was doing my strength training, the kettlebell in the spare bedroom, doing sumo squats, swinging their kettlebell, like the instructor was saying on the app. Jeff Capes. Jeff Capes. <laughs> and then who comes through my legs just on the swing? So I don't know how to even answer that question. Oh, sorry, Margot. <laughs> I nearly hoofed her with the kettlebell. Can you imagine? What little Margot, the podcat? Exactly. She would have liked that. Did she make this face? It's true. You know what I'm doing there, sticking my tongue out. Oh, that would be an angry cat because did you know? Oh, cats have 276 expressions when they interact with their human owners. Oh no, they don't really. Uh, there was a survey. It was in the papers this week. 45% of those expressions are friendly, but 37% are not oh. friendly. And if they stick their tongue out like that, Trish, they're not liking it. Can you imagine? What her little face would have looked like. Meowza, as I said when I read it. Yes. Anyway, you better get studying Margot's expressions because you know my theory is she's going to murder you in your bed one day. Yeah, I will report back. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hot house, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we are experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Now, young Trish, I bring you news of two exciting things. Firstly, I've learned that I'm not the only woman to uh, repeatedly try and get in the wrong car by accident. Secondly, I've received a heartwarming message from a listener in my Cornish hometown. Now, I never hear of anyone ever coming from my Cornish hometown. My mum's beside herself about all of it. Oh, really? That's fantastic. But it's great to get messages, isn't it? We love the messages uh, from the women who now know us because we do sometimes sort of wonder if we're just waffling into an empty void here on the podcast. We're not, actually. We would be wrong to think that. I was just thinking the other day that midlife feels very much like a shared journey, doesn't it? Because we have so much interaction with our community. Now, if you remember, on one of the podcasts, I mentioned that I had spent some time in the busyness of my day trying to get into the tailgate of a different coloured car. Brain flog, whatever you call it. Anyway, I thought, oh, how embarrassing that I should be doing that. Anyway, the ladies on the Facebook group, the Postcards from Midlife Private Facebook group, told me that getting into the wrong car is literally the bottom line of bloopers, brain fog bloopers. <laughs> it's a bit low key, as it turns out. 
Aparna wrote on the group that she got into a car with some other man. (laughs) Thinking he was her husband. (laughs) She turned to him, told him to step on it because she needed the loo and be having an accident in the car if he didn't. Wasn't her husband, Trish? Can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. Do we know if she if she hit the accelerator pedal? I hope not. I hope she got out. God knows where she might have ended up. Orla also, she also posted, she spent an hour washing her husband's car because there's lots of bird poo on it. That's really annoying, the bird poo. It was actually her neighbour's 18-year-old son's car. She'd been washing. And, of course, his face lit up, apparently, when he saw it. We're just so busy, aren't we? I think that we just don't quite click in. And then there was a favourite one for me um, on the Facebook group. And I think the the lady attributed it to baby brain, which again is hormonal, I think. She says, I was extremely confused when I got in my car to find a pair of men's slippers on the pedals. Why would someone put them there? I thought. (laughs) Then I saw my car, a similar red Mazda, parked in front of the car I was in. The key had worked in both. Wow. Thank God I am not the only one is the phrase that uh, comes to mind. It's it's written a lot on our Facebook group. We're not alone in our brain fog bloopery. Can I just point out as health and safety monitor, I'm rather alarmed about that key situation. Don't like that at all. I knew as soon as I read it, Trish would not be worried about the slippers or the no. hygiene of the slippers. That was my other thought you might be worried about, the hygiene of the men's slippers in your in your car. You won't be worried about that. You'll be worried about the health and safety aspects and the security aspects of the key. It's a very Trish thing. Always. Back to the email from my homeland, a missive from Liscard. So those of you who subscribe, which everyone is really easy to do, all you have to do is hit follow on whichever platform you're getting your podcast on and then your episodes will be downloaded. I mentioned the Cornish market town where I went to school, near where my family lived, because Louis de Bernier has set a new novel there, which is a complete mystery why anyone would set a novel there. Anyway, a lovely, amazing lady called Anne-Marie Clark contacted me from Liscard um, because she's a long-time listener, so she loves the show, and she had no idea that I came from the town. She helps run a wonderful charity that I wanted to mention. It's called Refuge for Pets, with the number four, and it works across Devon and Cornwall, and it's a network of volunteer foster parents for animals or women fleeing from domestic abuse because you can't take pets into refuge or temporary accommodation. Um, and it's really important for families to know that their animals are being safely looked after so that when they get back into homes, they can take them back into the family again. Anyway, Refuge for Pets covers all the pet care, and they're based in my hometown of Liscard. It brought a little tear to my eye hearing this. Lovely little pets being looked after. I think we should all follow them on Facebook and uh, share the work they do. I don't think Margot could go into foster care, (laughs) unless it was Buckingham Palace. We've also heard uh, from quite a few listeners after we interviewed India Knight, when she came on the show, mainly to talk about uh, beauty, but she also hit on a subject that everyone's feeling quite uh, passionate about at the moment. She talked about going sober. We have talked a lot about the fact we just can't drink wine anymore. I mean, it's taken me 57 years, 56 years to realise that, but I'm there at last. It just gives us raging hangovers, sends us a bit mad. But she kind of had a really good angle on this because she talked about looking back and realising that all the times she'd been careless with herself, as she had put it, put herself at risk, I suppose, had involved alcohol. So she went a week without drinking and just carried on. Actually, this year, a record number of people tried out dry January, about 9 million, according to Alcohol Change UK. And some of us have just finished sober October, although not me. Have you done it? No, I didn't. (laughs) No, okay. (laughs) 
So I'm quite good at being self-controlled, aren't I? And kind of organised and all of that sort of thing. But when it came to wine, I just wasn't because as soon as I drank a glass, I just had to have another glass and another glass. It's sugar addiction, isn't it? Yeah, it's the sugar. I think it's something. Yeah. And it's the strength yeah. of the alcohol and you sip it really quickly. And I used to have that like, oh God, I just need a glass of wine feeling. And I thought, well, and I can't deal with this. I've got to stop. So have a gin and tonic instead. And then about a month on, I just stopped getting that feeling of, I really need a drink to take the edge off. That just went completely. And I would just have one gin and tonic, maybe a beer, maybe a glass of red wine. And that was it. So I think it's a question of do we have to give up completely or is there a way of moderating? I think it's a bit about experimenting with that somehow. That's what kind of worked for me. And there's a questionnaire, isn't there, on Drink Aware where you can check in on kind of what's going on, I guess, with your attitude. Yeah, exactly. We've got Tamsin Althwaite coming up on the show. She gave up um, as well. So it'd be interesting to talk to her at the end of this month. And also Caroline Heron's the beauty influencer who we had previously on the show that so just stopped for the same reasons that, that we had. She just found life easier without it. But it's quite hard in our culture, I think, to talk about alcohol without getting an emotional response because people don't like being told not to drink, do they? One of our listeners wrote to us and she wrote, my first thought is I want to take India on a night out. I feel sad for her that she's never had a fun night out when drunk. I always had such great memorable times when drunk. I loathe this midlife doom and gloom. We've gone from not talking about the menopause to suddenly defining everything in midlife. My advice to women my age is find yourself some friends aged in their late 20s and 30s and socialise with them as much as you can because it's life-affirming. That's interesting, isn't it? Well, it's interesting. It's, it's, um, it's quite different. And I think the key word there is that she said memorable nights out drunk. Yes. I mean, I don't think I've had many. Memorable ones. I think that's probably what India was talking about, wasn't it? Because, you know, the problem is you may well have fun, but you can't remember much of it. You might lose your keys, get in the wrong car. You might wake up in the night feeling shocking and then have that awful fear and cringing the next day. The question is, I think, is it worth it? And I think that's what kind of India was saying. I think that listener was right about friends, though, but I don't think we should be writing off the over 40s, please, and our ability to have fun. Another listener wrote, I decided after my 50th birthday, I would enjoy the final boozy Christmas and that would be it for me. I thought it was only deserving of me to give my brain every chance to keep its cells. I had perimenopause to look forward to and we all know what happens to our brain cells during this time. We also have family members with dementia. I won't know if this will stop me falling down that same rabbit hole, but trust me, watching articulate people fall away from our grass is heartbreaking. Since giving up, I have climbed mountains, walked thousands of miles, swam with my dogs, bought a motorhome and never, ever looked back. The strange thing was it was not hard to do. My husband still enjoyed his old pint, but I'm quite happy with my soft drink. If you're thinking about it, give it a go. It may not suit everyone, but what have you got to lose giving it a try? Um, Another listener who stopped drinking emailed us to say, I was gutted when even a sip of wine started triggering debilitating hot flashes earlier this year, especially when hot flashes haven't really been a problem for me otherwise. Culturally, I just didn't see myself as someone who wouldn't have a glass of wine with a good meal. I abandoned my attempts to find an alcoholic drink that worked for me a couple of months ago and started trying mocktails. Two months into this period of no drinking, the effects are a lot different from when I was young. My attitude is evolving every day, so I'm following your coverage of this with gratitude and curiosity. Curious is good, and I think it is just that, you know, we're all individuals. There's no hard and fast rules around this. You know what works for you and what doesn't. Yeah, it's become a bit of a movement, I think, the sober curious thing where you it's an all or nothing, which I think you, it doesn't really have to be. And we do come from such a culture where drinking was 
such a part of like you kind of felt you had to drink at university after work it's a real sort of 90s Bridget Jones style glass of wine culture anyway whether you choose the booze or not we don't judge well Trisha's alter ego Marion might judge (laughs) it's really up to everyone how they live their lives but one thing we do want to be as we get older is healthier which is where today's special guest comes in yes we are going to be having the NHS GP food writer and Instagram star Dr Rupi Algela aka the doctor's kitchen in our hot seat today and we're going to be finding out exactly what nutritional medicine is and how you can make it work for you in midlife Yes, and once Dr. Rupi has sorted out your insides, we're going to sort out your (laughs) outsides. I think I can put it that way, maybe. In our How to Win at Midlife section of the show today, Trish and I will be finding out how to boost your fashion mojo in midlife. Now, Trish, you can imagine a day where you know exactly what clothes are going to suit you before you put them on or before you buy them, and that if you look in your wardrobe, you can see a piece of clothing you thought you hated and revive it. I have already talked to personal stylist Anna Barkley about her new app, Think Shape, which offers a new way of getting dressed with confidence. It's all about the detail, Trish, and it explains actually why I can't wear ballet flats and why certain polar necks really don't suit me. I'm so glad I found the answer to that question. We'll be talking about that later on in the show. It's all really useful stuff and uh, more proof, I hope, that we are a pair of knowledgeable nitwits or we or we're able to find the people with the knowledge if we don't have it ourselves and if you do want more of this do sign up to our brand new mini magazine on substack it's called postcards from lorraine and trish and it's available now it costs five pounds per month to subscribe to and you'll get a fortnightly newsletter with lots and lots of great content written by us with lots of contributions from our expert and celebrity pals. And it's a lot of work for us, but it is our passion. And we're both super excited to flex our magazine muscles once again. Do you want to explain how people can find it? Yes. Well, we'll be including everything from our huge access to all the uh, celebrities and experts that we get to speak to. And it is for women of all ages. So it's called Postcards from Lorraine and Trish. And it's on a platform called Substack. So if you Google Substack, go on to Substack and then type in postcards from Lorraine and Trish, not postcards from midlife, postcards from Lorraine and Trish, it will come up and then you will be offered the chance to subscribe. There'll be a little button, you press the button and then you'll be able to pay your £5 a month, which is what's that Trish, two coffees maybe? And you will get our mini magazine every month and it will drop automatically into your inbox, your email inbox. And when you go on and look at it, you'll be able to see all the back ones. So if you don't get a chance to read it that day, you can go back in and read the archive and all the information we'll put there. And it will be so much uh, practical, useful information, as well as videos and voice notes. And we'll be having threads of chats about things. We'll be answering people's questions. But it will all be there on Substack, postcards from Lorraine and Trish. And of course, that is in addition to our podcast, the podcast, our free podcast is always there for you, as is uh, the Facebook group, the private Facebook group that we run as well. So those are always there for you. Busy times, Trish. So shall we meet Dr. Rupi? Shall I just hide the hobnobs first, just in case? Yeah, put them away. Okay, listeners, are you ready to have your taste buds tickled and your mind and body energised? 
Well, Lorraine and I certainly are, because this week's special guest is on a mission to help us all to eat better and tastier every day in order to improve our well-being, manage our weight and protect our health as we make our way into our midlife years and beyond. Dr. Ruby Algela is an NHS GP food writer and advocate of nutritional medicine who you may well already know from the Doctor's Kitchen Instagram, which has more than 300,000 followers, as well as his podcast of the same name, which explores fascinating nutrition and health topics on everything from whether aluminium foil is toxic, if organic food is really worth it, to the symptoms caused by unhealed trauma. Dr. Rupi is also the author of three cookbooks, most recently, The Doctor's Kitchen Cooks Healthy Easy Flavour, which is designed to help us all eat healthier one meal at a time. His fascination with food as medicine all started 10 years ago when at the age of 25, Dr. Rupi was diagnosed with a rare heart condition which sparked his mission to share the power of what he calls the natural medicines that line our grocery aisles. Recently married, he lives in London with his wife Rochelle and Cavapoo Nutmeg and he joins us today looking the picture of good health. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Rupi. Thanks for having me, guys. Now, let's start by finding out what you mean by nutritional medicine because that really is quite intriguing. And also why you say the foundation of our health starts on our plate. Yeah, so I, I kind of see food as a bit of a gateway drug to get people into this whole concept of lifestyle medicine, which is really about a back-to-basics approach to health, how we set the foundations for a healthy, thriving body and mind. So I sort of use the medium of food and flavor to entice people into a healthier lifestyle. During my time uh, working as an NHS GP, you know, the easiest way to motivate people would be to talk to them about food. And I was lucky enough to train and, and work in, in London for over 15 years now, where I see people from all sorts of backgrounds, whether it be Korean or Sri Lankan, Indian, Jamaican, and everyone has sort of a favorite food. Everyone just loves talking about food. And when I sort of started talking to them about like how they can healthify their recipes by adding more plant-based proteins, for example, or beans, or lessening the reliance on processed convenience foods. We could start a conversation about the other determinants that are just as important as nutrition. So whether that be mindset, whether that be sleep, whether that be uh, obviously exercise and, and movement, uh, which is obviously something that a lot of people can can understand. I think when you talk about it through the medium of food, it's as a lot less sort of intimidating because I think a lot of people have this sort of idea of you go to the doctor or you go to your dentist, for example, and, and you get sort of told off and you get told you should do these things. Whereas actually, I think if you flip on his head and you actually want to do those things, you want to get into your kitchen, you want to taste those flavors, I think that's that's sort of like how I found motivating patients, uh, a more effective way of motivating patients. And this concept of nutritional medicine is not really something that I've sort of conjured up or anything. It's, it's actually um, the name of my my master's uh, degree at the moment that I'm I'm completing at University of Surrey. And it's really the idea of preventative medicine. I think most people, if you ask them, what do you think of when you think of medicine? You think of a syringe. Prescription. Prescription, Exactly. You don't really think about food as medicine. And I think medicine can take many different roles. Imagine sort of um, a football team and you have like your strikers, uh, so your, your forward players. Those are sort of like your very targeted 
uh, drugs that we have. You know, they have a, a singular role. It's there to score goals. They're very effective at doing that. Then you also have your, your goalkeeper, and, and they're pr- playing a very important role as well. They can't do what the forwards do, but they protect your goal. They protect you from losing the game ultimately by ensuring that you're not being scored against. And that, that's sort of like how I think about food. It's more of that protective role. It's more sort of enhancing the foundation. And then you have your midfield and stuff that, you know, really sort of get uh, mentioned, but they're like your core. They're like exercise, your mindset, your mood, uh, a number of other uh, very important factors like the sense of community, your self-worth. Those are very, very important players in this whole team that is all regarded in my mind as medicine. Do you think that means that we're in a place where at some point you can go to the doctor and they'll say, well, you've got IBS, you should eat more spinach. And I'm not going to give you antibiotics or this or this. <laughs> are, we, are we ever going to get to that place? You know, you've got a migraine. I really think you need more iron. I'm going to give you some ghastly beetroot for that. Do you think, is that a place we're heading to? I mean, uh, hopefully they won't just give spinach if, if someone comes with IBS. I mean, <laughs> the role of uh, uh, a GP, a primary care physician or a secondary care physician is always going to be to ensure we're not missing the major things and ensure yeah. we're doing a good job of managing what we can do. GPs don't ever talk about that. They just say eat more healthy. We're getting to a point where more GPs are willing to have the conversations because they're educating themselves. And I think my sort of experience of personal ill health was the catalyst for me to do a deep dive into this stuff, uh, you know, as a, in my early 20s, uh, which I probably wouldn't have had the impulse to do had I just gone down the sort of conventional yeah. route. Until perhaps one of my family members, you know, started having a heart condition or got diagnosed with type two diabetes, as is very common for for people from from South Asian backgrounds. And that sort of idea of, well, I'm a patient now. I don't want to take these drugs. I don't want to have to have this intervention. I don't want to have to be constantly going in and and changing the regime and all that kind of stuff. There's got to be an alternative way. That's sort of when I started thinking about it. And luckily, I had the introduction very early. I think a lot of other GPs are coming around to it, uh, particularly later on in their career, where they realize polypharmacy, so this idea of over-prescribing and actually being reliant on many different medications for patients is a real big issue uh, that we're we're trying to address. And food provides a a very important forgotten tool in our our medical toolbox. So food played a really big role in in your recovery from your heart condition and sort of going forwards in, in, in managing it as well and keeping you really healthy. And we know that heart health is like one of the biggest killers, not the biggest killer of women. What should women know about heart health and what they can eat to protect themselves? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that we have to start thinking about uh, heart health early because the foundations for a healthy heart are actually not you know, in your 30s and 40s is actually in your teenage years. You know, we, we know from very unfortunate circumstances and autopsies of uh, young people who have been involved in car accidents that the atheromas, so these, these plaques that start in your coronaries and your arteries, start as young as, as your teens. And you don't see the ramifications of that until later. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't start uh, thinking about it. And I think the other important factor is you can do a lot about it through food, but it's not with the exclusion of everything else. I think there are some very important drugs that we can use. There are very important measures, biometrics, like blood pressure that everyone should have checked. 
everyone should really have a, a blood pressure machine in their house. I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't because it costs literally 10 pounds and it's a, one of the best preventative tools that we have for, um, for heart disease. And when it comes down to food, it's a very, very simple sort of strategy. It is ensuring that you're having plenty of dark uh, greens. The reason why is because not only do they create uh, a, a number of different anti-inflammatory metabolites, not only do they improve your gut health, but they also contain a really interesting molecule called nitrates. Uh, and nitrates that you might have heard in a good or bad context are a really important facet of our of our diet. The mineral, is it nitrate? Yeah, so nitrogen comes from nitrogen. So the nitrogen, yeah. you think back to your chemistry sort of days in GCSE. The reason why nitrate gets a bad rap is because nitrate, when it's added artificially, without the polyphenols and without the vitamins and minerals that you get in, say, you know, your, your beet or your dark green leafy vegetables, actually uh, is used as a preservative for things like processed foods. And that leads to overproduction of nitrates that when combined with the proteins in meat called amines, can cr create something called nitrosamines. And these nitrosamines have been shown to be cancerous, which is why, if you remember back to 2016, I think it was, WHO actually labeled processed foods, processed meats as type 1 carcinogen. Cancer ham, we called it, yes. Yeah, yeah. So Bacon, cancer ham. Yeah, can yeah, exactly. <laughs> My which children are sick of me saying, don't eat that, it's cancer ham. Yeah, yeah, which I, I, I don't agree because you know, the arguments on both sides were people saying, well, we shouldn't be calling for moderation. We should be calling for a complete ban. If it's a type 1 carcinogen, it's bad as smoking. And you've got other people saying, well, you know, let's steady on. It really depends on context. You know, what if you're having a piece of bacon with tons of veggies? Does that negate it? The short answer is we don't really know. But I think when it comes to food, it's never like black and white. I, I've always been a proponent of you really want to focus on the 90% and, and that 10% is something that you can have a little bit of flex around. And if you aim for 90-10, you'll probably end up 80-20. So in addition to sort of like dark green leafy vegetables, you want to be having lots of pulses. So lentils, chickpeas, legumes, beans, these are fantastic for cardiac health, not just because they provide plant-based proteins without the added saturated fat that we know can balloon cholesterol ratios at differing rates depending on who the person is, but it also can lower cholesterol by actually bringing uh, cholesterol out of circulation. This is a very complicated topic, and I've, I've done a, a deep dive into cholesterol myself on, on a podcast in the doctor's kitchen. But in general, you want to be having a lot more pulses in your diet. They're fantastic for a number of other reasons, less uh, cholesterol, but also for your gut uh, microbiota as well that has a net anti-inflammatory effect. And then uh, you want to be looking at a largely plant-based diet. Now, I say largely plant-based because I'm of the opinion that Protein from animal products does confer some benefits, particularly at a later uh, stage for both men and women. And it's quite hard to get your protein requirements from plants unless you're pretty fastidious about it and you're getting it from a variety of different sources that can actually be quite expensive and you're supplementing appropriately and all the rest of it. It's about oily fish. People are always banging on about that. There, there are some some extras there. So oily fish, I think, is a, is a great addition and I tend to get oily uh, omega-3 from uh, small um, fish, so things like anchovies, sardines. And, you know, if you don't like anchovies, a really good way of sort of getting that umami flavor without the strong fishy taste is actually putting it in the base of your stew or your casserole. 
it sort of just melts away and you don't really, you know, there's something in the background that's mm-hmm. like giving an umami flavor. You don't immediately say, oh, that's anchovies in there unless you're, mm-hmm. you're really averse to it. And the reason why I'd say get your omega-3s from uh, small fish is because A, the larger the fish, the more concentrate those sort of heavy metals that are polluting our seas, unfortunately, are. Uh, the other thing is you're getting a long-chain omega-3, which is EPA and DHA. You do get omega-3s from plant-based sources, so things like chia or walnuts or flax. Those are short-chain omega-3 fatty acids that don't necessarily convert into the long chain or don't efficiently convert into the long chain. And so it kind of annoys me when you when you have like um, plant-based products on supermarket shelves that we've got omega-3. It's like it's the longer chain that you, you can only really get from small fish. If you don't eat fish, it's algae, is it? Algae-based supplements, yeah. yeah. Quite expensive. I mean, I personally take a an algae-based omega-3, not because I'm vegan, but because I prefer the cleaner source of, of the yeah. omega-3 compared to like krill or cod liver oil that can be quite bad in terms of sustainability. But that's because I have the privilege of, you know, being out to forward down. So Rupi, you obviously have all this amazing nutrition knowledge, scientific knowledge, but you, you mentioned just now about the umami flavor. Your passion as well is cooking, isn't it? And really bringing all of this to life in the most kind of flavorsome, delicious ways. And you've said in the past that your cooking skills, they came from your rather impressive mum. Can you tell us about her and and what you learned from her in terms of the cook? Because I think we'd all love our kids to be good at cooking (laughs) and really interested in all of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I grew up in a foodie household. So, you know, my earliest memories when I was young were of, like, us watching the Food Channel and, you know, Contessa... I forget her surname now, but Contessa Bakes, she's a lady who is like this wonderful house in like the Hamptons or something in America. And then obviously uh, Nigella, Jamie, early days. And my mum was a real sort of adventurous cook and that sort of rubbed off on like what we would eat uh, growing up. And then before I went to med school, she said, you know, you really need to start cooking for yourself now. So as a 17-year-old, she taught me a number of different recipes, one of which was a Thai uh, lemongrass curry. And I knew how to make this and like maybe two other very, very simple dishes. So when I went to med school, everyone thought I was like this amazing cook because I could cook, you know, this incredible dish with like galangal and lemongrass and coconut milk and, you know, it's a relatively uh, authentic dish. So she sort of provided the impetus for me to, you know, get this reputation uh, of, of being like a very cultured uh, young 18-year-old at med school. So to keep up this pretense, I started learning <laughs> recipes and I became known as the the guy who liked to cook uh, at med school. But in reality, sort of the only time I actually started using that new passion for food and applying that to healthy ingredients and healthy flavors and was when I got ill myself when I was um, uh, 24, so uh, over 15 years ago now. That's when I started applying the principles of cooking and and techniques of like how to pair ingredients and flavors to healthy ingredients. Um, you know, so out went cereals in the morning and in came uh, leftovers and and overnight oats and and nuts and seeds. And it's interesting because my mum also had her own health issues when I was really young. So she actually overcame. Um, anaphylaxis, the most severe form of allergy 
uh, where your blood pressure drops and you have to have an adrenaline shot. So she always used to carry an EpiPen with her. She was diagnosed with idiopathic anaphylaxis, which is a fancy word for saying, we don't know why you have anaphylaxis. That's partly why you did medicine. Partly, yeah, partly. Because I remember there was a this time when I was, I must have only been like 11 or 12. I can't remember if I've told the story before, but she called me into the living room and she said, look, Rupi, I need you to do something very brave today. I was like, okay, yeah, well, what's up? And uh, she handed me the EpiPen. She said, you have to inject this EpiPen into my thigh right now. I was like, okay. And so put the EpiPen in. She directed me. She was like, you have to push it down to the clicks. I was like, okay, fine. Push it down to the clicks. Heard the click. And then she was like, okay, great. You've passed your test. <laughs> that was a dummy EpiPen. But if I ever get to a situation where I passed out or you find me unconscious um, you need to grab this EpiPen from my purse, this or it is, and you have to do exactly what you just did into the thigh. And so that was sort of my uh, introduction. It's probably quite traumatic, actually. I mean, yes. I thought about it from that perspective. <laughs> probably wouldn't be able to get away with that anymore. But that uh, was sort of my first introduction into sort of the medical sphere. And I always got, I was interested in like her diet at the time because she took, she, you know, come from an Indian background. So she took very much uh, an Ayurvedic traditional medicine approach to her issue. She went on what would be described as an elimination diet. So mm. she took out gluten and dairy and a whole bunch of products. I remember she was literally eating like spinach and brown rice. What, what is Ayurvedic? Yeah, yeah. So Ayurvedic is like an ancient traditional medicine uh, slash art form that uh, has its mm. roots in um, ancient India. It's pretty much lifestyle medicine. The basics are sleep well, all sort of disease originates in the gut. That's not strictly true, but a lot of it does come down to uh, gut-related issues, ensuring that you're of sound mind, ensuring that you're exercising your, your body every single day, and ensuring that you're having good, wholesome food. Herbs, though, aren't there? There are herbs. There are a lot of herbs. And I think most people sort of gravitate to the herbs and the spices and the particular way in which you eat your, your diet. But I think that's sort of the minutiae of Ayurvedic medicine. I think really the way I see Ayurvedic medicine and other traditional medicine art forms, it's, it's getting the basics right. You know, the spices and the herbs, they're almost like the supplements to nutrition. And nutrition is really about getting the basics right rather than majoring in the, in the minors. And so whilst there are like, you know, wonderful spices like turmeric and different types of chilies and, and uh, there was one that I came across uh, very recently called Gugul. It's G-U-G-G-U-L and it has a, a variety of uses for thyroid conditions and cholesterol. So there's actually some, some evidence around how it can improve cholesterol ratios. So yes, there are sort of specific herbs and spices that people might might think of when they think about Ayurvedic medicine. But when I think about it, I'm thinking of the food, the lifestyle, the walking, the exercise, the sleep, the sound mind. That's what I think of, of Ayurvedic uh, medicine. And that's essentially what my mother really did lean into. I mean, now she, you know, she eats a, a very sort of diverse diet. She probably doesn't live the healthiest lifestyle that she, she had to back then, but she's overcome her, her anaphylaxis. Oh, wow. So that's experience coupled with my, my traumatic experience of having to use a dummy pen um, was probably what led me to medicine. Yeah, you're right. Now, you were mentioning some sort of herbs that we'd never heard of. We were hearing a lot about 
I'm going to say this wrong probably, ashwangada? Ashwagandha, yeah. Ashwagandha, that's it. Everyone's it? taking Everyone it. Everyone seems to be talking Everyone's about but we, do, we don't know what it is. What does it do, do you swallow us? it? Do you, do you rub it on your podcast co-host? What do you do with it? <laughs> it's the brain, isn't it? Well, it's for a number of different things. So there is some evidence that it does have a calming and relaxing effect. So most people who take ashwagandha extract are using it from a mental health point of view. And there are some cognitive um, effects as well, and apparently improves memory. There is a potential role for it in dementia as well. The issue with ashwagandha and a number of other herbs, like the, the one that I just described, is there aren't great studies of looking at any of these things, with the exception of turmeric, which is sort of like the golden child of Ayurveda, I guess you could call it. I love a bit of turmeric. Yeah, everyone loves turmeric. You know, even conventional docs use turmeric these days. You know, it's great for people with IBD, with inflammatory bowel, with um, arthritis. I prefer getting the whole turmeric with um, black pepper because it has piperine in, and piperine increases the bioavailability of the um, active component of turmeric. With ashwagandha, like there are studies, but there are varying quality, and I think it becomes more of a sort of marketing thing. And I think there's probably much more effective ways of improving one's cognitive health and mental well-being before we start adding the cherries on top, which are things like ashwagandha, for example, or 5-HTP or L-theanine, which is a- another amino that's been shown to have a calming effect. That you know, There's a whole host of, of supplements out there that sort of almost promising that desired effect Without re- without really getting down to the basis yeah. why you might be having that problem in the first place, I, I fear that like a lot of my friends, uh, not to call anyone out here, is that they'll hear about ashwagandha or insert any supplement, and they're like, "Great, I've got that. I feel a bit anxious sometimes. You know, I live a stressful lifestyle. I'll pop a, a few of those every single day, see how I feel, and they might have wonderful effects. And that could, you know, whether that's a placebo effect or a genuine effect of the ashwagandha, it's very hard to tell." But they don't do the basics. So, you know, it's just getting those basics right. And that's going to have a far greater effect with a lot more evidence behind it than taking a, a supplement like, like ashwagandha. Can I ask the million dollar question? So we have a huge community of midlife women. And one of the questions they ask most around midlife is the midlife middle, the widening, weight putting on. It's a very depressing thing for, for many women, particularly women of, of Gen X, because we've been told we have to be a certain shape as well. There's all that mental load around it. And it's probably the question we're asked most. What can I eat that will help me lose weight? I mean, obviously, one eats less, et cetera, et cetera. But there are hormonal changes that happen alongside this as metabolism. There's a lot to think about as you're a woman getting older. And you know, certainly all of us seem to experience it being harder to lose weight in say after the age of 40. What are your thoughts, Rupi, on that? It's definitely the first question that any anyone in that age category asked me. And I think the, the first thing is take a step back and understand why there is a an excess of, of weight, particularly around the midline region. And I, I've heard from patients and colleagues alike, I haven't changed my diet, I haven't changed my exercise regime, but I'm putting on weight. The reason why, in part, is because of your hormones. So when you have a drop in your estrogen, your body is very, very smart at trying to find other sources of estrogen in your body. And what happens is your fat cells 
produce a weak estrogen, I believe it's called estrone, that can be converted down the line into the estrogen that your alpha and beta cells will take up. This encourages the fat cells to multiply and provide that deficit in your estrogen. So that is why you do have what is colloquially called, and I hate to use the term, the midline spread, the mid-age rubber band or whatever my, my mum's. Muffin top. Yeah, that combined with the excess of inflammation that will occur with the increase in the number of fat cells because it produces a number of other inflammatory byproducts will affect your mood. You have a drop in your testosterone, which means that you're going to have a worsening of your uh, muscle stores going from, from protein to, to fat. So you're going to have less muscle. You're going to feel less inclined to exercise as well. That might actually explain why you don't feel, you know, you have, you know, can't be asked or CBA. And then you have the impact on your sleep as well that we know will encourage you to snack probably more often than you realize unless you're very fastidious about tracking. So understanding the, the complex milieu of things that occur at that time in life that lead to that annoying mid-late spread. That's something that I, I always encourage people to get a hold on thereafter. The things that I would ensure that people are doing is making sure that they, they are even stricter on their diet. I hate to say it. I don't think a calorie deficit diet is the way to go because what happens is it can change your weight set point. It can encourage you to uh, actually overeat when you inevitably fall off the wagon. If you're starving yourself, you will not be able to maintain that level of calorie deficit for long. And when you do inevitably go above that calorie threshold, you'll put on more weight. And that's why you see this yo-yo of uh, dieting that trends upwards, unfortunately, if you follow people long enough. So that's one thing I would say. Calorie deficit definitely works. 100% it will encourage you to lose weight. In the short term, the long term is very, very hard unless you're fastidious. Exercise, changing up your exercise regime is really, really important. And you want to be transferring Maintaining your aerobic fitness is very, very important, but also adding strength training exercises. The reason why is because not only does it improve things like osteoporosis, which again is an inevitability of the lack of hormones, but it also in it firms up your, your muscle stores. That will definitely increase your ability to stave off the, the, and the fat cells. And also it can improve sort of uh, production of testosterone that, that can lead to oh, right. your mental well-being as well. So there's a number of, of things that I think people should be aware of. Ensuring that their diet is on point, ensuring that their exercising is um, conducive to both aerobic and strength training, and just getting that understanding of what happens when, when you do go through that period of life. Mm -hmm. There are obviously benefits of replacing hormones if it is appropriate for that individual. And I always recommend people speak to their primary care physician about that or a specialist um, in hormone therapy. Do you have any guilty pleasures? We should just say, we've talked about the book a bit. It is fabulous recipes. Lorraine and I have tried them all. They are so delicious. I'm a horribly bad cook. <laughs> I like them. And actually, when you eat in this way, it's probably worth saying you don't want to snack. And I, I definitely have less cravings for sweet things, but I do have the odd one still. Lorraine loves a hobnob. I love a chocolate brownie. Do you have guilty pleasures? Yeah, loads, loads. I love, uh, I love chocolate. That's probably my guilty pleasure. Although the kind of chocolate I eat is quite high in cocoa solids, so it's like a minimum of seventy-five percent. I know a lot of people will be like, "Oh God, that's too bitter," but I've grown accustomed to the flavor of of bitter flavors. 
I do snack a lot, uh, actually, when I'm at home. And if my wife has bought, it could be, I'm just trying to think what's in my cupboards right now, tortillas, not Doritos. It's uh, another brand. Absolutely. Doritos are terrible for you. <laughs> no, 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 it's not Doritos. It looks like a Dorito and it's, and it's a better version of Dorito, but it's still Dorito. If there is something like that in my house that I try and keep out of the house, unless my wife has you know, bought it, I will eat it. I, I struggle to maintain a strict diet and and strict sort of um, attitude to to food if I know there is something like that in my in, in my cupboards. Another thing with my lenses, my contact lenses that I I buy online, they always give me a little cute little bag of Fantastics, the the Haribo. Immediately, I have to take that and give it to someone else straight away. And it's a habit that I think I developed from working in wards for so long. Uh, you know, the, and the nurses station, which is not just the nurses station, as well the computers are, and you're writing notes and all the rest of it. But we've always got like you know some lovely patient that's given some you know arabos or celebrations or ferrosha if you're if you're in a, in a posh ward, and that habitual snacking, just grabbing something and and just shoving it into your mouth. I do struggle with that. I honestly struggle with that. So I have to be very very careful about what I purchase and what I allow to put in my in my kitchen because I, I have that weak spot. Is there a mindset change that can any advice around that? Because, you know, Trish and I have got teenage children, younger children. You don't want to keep saying, as I often do, for God's sake, your guts you're gonna kill your gut with all of those that diet coke and those those Krispy Kreme donuts and all of that. And and actually just even, you know, with you know, my husband's quite a long-term meat eater. <laughs> He's sick of hearing me talking about probiotics and things like that. Yeah, there's that natural antagonism, I think, um, with with anyone. It's not just kids, it's patients as well. And I think you've got to find their motivating triggers. So what is it about a uh, an activity or uh, a food that can pique their interest? And it might be if they're athletes or they like sports or they want to improve certain aspects of their game or they want to uh, be sharper, or um, they want to look better. I mean, like you know, th- there are some very, very simple truths. Unfortunately, that people love to look good naked and they want to be successful. And those, those are two motivating factors that I think we can use to not trick them, but you know, indulge them a little bit and get them intrigued into a healthier way of of living. And it, you have to start small. I would also say the other thing with with children is that you want to ensure that they're involved in the cooking process and they actually learn those skills early on. And that was something that I was taught when I was 17 before I I went to med school. The ability to look after oneself is as as important as, you know, the ability to uh, look after your finances, to look after, to to be able to swim, to, you know, um, deal with troubling situations. I think food is a really, really important part of of self care, and getting them involved in the cooking process so they can actually see how a delicious meal is being prepared with healthier ingredients, and maybe even not calling them healthy ingredients, just yeah. adding the the ingredients in that whole form, you know, is a way to get people used to and normalizing uh, a healthy way of, of eating. I often feel that like the words that I use to describe recipes. In the early days, we're like, you know, health boosting this or, you know, uh, vibrant, uh, heart healthy, yada, yada, yada. And now 
I use words that lean more into the enticement, into the flavor, into the sort of cultural uh, heritage of, of a dish. Because there's some really interesting studies uh, looking at human behavior, and um, they had an experiment in a canteen. I forget what the study was now, but they uh, they labeled sides according to two different criteria. Uh, they had carrots. I remember one of the sides was carrots. They had crunchy, heart-healthy carrots was one labeling. And then on another day, they labeled it as a zingy, uh, zesty, sweet carrots in a something glaze. Exactly the same carrots. And they measured how many people actually opted into the healthy version versus the the sort of indulgent version, and loads more people went for the indulgent version. Ultimately, the cohorts were still eating carrots, but they they were probably more enticed by the fact that it was described by its flavor attributes rather than the health attributes. Humans are predictably irrational. We say that we want healthy food, but we opt for the the food that's actually more about taste and flavor. Because in that moment, we are always going to go with what our sort of like primal brain wants and that's flavor and sweetness and taste and saltiness and all that all the good stuff so finally i mean christmas is coming do we just kind of give up and start (laughs) in january Uh (laughs) have you got any tips maybe just a couple of tips to just balance things out a little bit maybe you know it's weird i was uh i was asked about this um about christmas in the audula household you know, is it healthy? Is it less? I was like, no, it's not. We have times when we indulge and we enjoy and we lean into, you know, the celebrations. Um, and there are times when we do not. And I think if you sort of add an element of guilt of like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm having potatoes with all the butter and I'm having turkey or chicken. I mean, I'm pescatarian now, but last year I was eating everything. I'm going to indulge. I'm, I'm going to have like everything with all the trimmings and, and the sugars and the desserts and everything else. And I might feel bad the next day, yes, in terms of like how I feel because my stomach's probably not used to that, but I'm going to really enjoy it. I would say when you're back on, you want to almost like have a plan. How are you going to use those leftovers in a healthy way? What are the recipes you're most looking forward to in that sort of, they call it betwixtmas now. Have you heard that term? Yes. Yeah. It's kind of an irritating term. Uh, but but the betwixtmas or whatever, which is generally quite boring and stuff. Like, what what can you do that's really uh, exciting? You know, can you make an indulgent bean like soup where you blend in some of those like Christmas spices? Um, are there things that you can do like together as a family to get everyone excited about the new year and like you know how this is going to be at, at your healthiest year uh, ever or whatever? I would say around that period of time, it can be quite easy to indulge for an entire month. And that's where I think there there might be some some suggestions there. Yes. What I always go for is be really conscious of alcohol. Yeah. Alcohol is probably your worst friend. It's a depressant. It's very calorific. It can affect obviously your, your fat stores. It's well, some people might see it as like you know a, a, a way of getting through the day. And I think we need to reframe yeah. the way we we think about alcohol as as sort of like as a crutch. Because it's very, it's not a crutch. It's it's the other way. It's pushing you down. So I, I'd be really conscious about limiting alcohol as much as possible. The other things I would say is, you know, when you do go for that the the sort of Christmas meals, go for a veggie option. Go for sides. Look at what the uh, the restaurant or wherever you're eating out 
can provide on that that might not even be on the menu. I've got really used to just saying, like, do you have any greens on the on the side? Mm-hmm. Do you have any sort of nuts or seeds that you can just put on top of this? Can you give me like a smaller version of that uh, element that you've got on the on the menu? They're very used to sort of accommodating now. If you could have one mantra, it's can you add just one more? Can you add just one more fruit, vegetable, nut or seed at every meal time? And that can be as simple as, you know, having the extra side of greens or uh, opting for like the roasted uh, butternut squash or whatever it might be that uh, a particular place is, is having. That's what I would say. But on Christmas itself, I would say you really, you really got to enjoy it. You can't you know, have a healthier version of a Christmas dinner. You don't want that. Oh, you've been so helpful. Rupee. I'm uh, I'm off to get. I have to carry an EpiPen for shellfish allergy. I'm going to get my son to practice it today. How old is he? He's seventeen. Oh yeah, he's going to get a practice one. Maybe I'll get the twelve-year-old yeah. to have a go. I think they'd be more annoyed about touching me than actually. <laughs> oh yeah, these days I think we're we're all very uh, conscious of the smallest of actions can have huge ramifications. Um, but I'm I'm lucky in that. I got off unscathed. You turned out okay, Rupi. You're doing. We've got your cookbook yeah. as a result. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you Thank so you. much for joining us. All good. My pleasure. So that was wonderful talking to Dr. Rupi. And if you would like to win a copy of his book, uh, we do have one to give away to our Facebook group, and also we have a couple of his recipes exclusively on our new Substack newsletter. So do pop on over there if you want to give it a little go. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So we've got something hot off the press for you for our How to Win at Midlife section of the show today. It's a new app called ThinkShape, which aims to help women dig deeper into the way they get dressed and find out what really suits them so they can review clothes they already have in their wardrobe or shop smarter. We've been among the first to try it out, so we thought we'd chat today about how we get dressed and perhaps help you feel more comfortable about fashion because we know that when we get older and our bodies change that we do get a bit confused about things and it does seem to really particularly worry us, this getting dressed scenario. Yes, it does. I find it quite difficult to buy new clothes. I've got all my old clothes, but they were sort of the old me, (laughs) you know, and, and trying to find new ways of dressing. I will buy the same kinds of things. So I'm really looking forward to to talking about the app. It's been set up by personal shopper and stylist Anna Barkley, who has a 28-year career in the fashion industry, during which time she's collaborated with some of the world's most renowned brands as a women's wear buyer, and that includes Selfridges, Prada, Margaret Howe, and she's also worked with a lot of high street brands too. And in her work with clients as a personal stylist, she's developed her body mapping technique where she draws around a woman in her studio and then works with the shape of that silhouette, which is a quite a different approach. 
Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Because you told me she doesn't have a mirror in the studio when she's helping people get their personal style right. She just works from the measurements that she gets from that silhouette that she draws around them. So I like Anna's work because she has quite a down-to-earth approach and she thinks clothes really are more about how they feel when you wear them. So if they feel really comfortable and the fit is really great, then you feel great in them, but they're only going to feel really comfortable and the fit's only going to be really great if you know your measurements. So you can be wearing slightly uncomfortable things because you don't know specifically that your arms may be a bit longer than the arms of other things. And also, I tell you what, I was a little bit sad to hear. So she sees lots and lots of women, hundreds of women, that almost all of them are uncomfortable with their bodies, whether they're working women, mums at home, older women, younger women. And I think that's kind of a little bit sad, isn't it? So she wanted to sort of move her formula of this body mapping into an app so that women would understand their silhouette and their shapes. And then they'd feel it was less about them being at fault, more about knowing more about the silhouette and their shape. And I think um, the app is really straightforward to use in terms of finding all these measurements, there's little videos. You just need one of those uh, sort of loose tape measure things, don't you? And you just measure all around your bust, your ankle size, your torso size, your shoulder width, all of these kind of things. So it takes about 10 minutes, but there's videos. And it's quite fascinating because obviously it's all about you. So you want to know about you. That's good. So I was a Hemera and she is the goddess of daylight. As you know, Trish, I'm a little sunbeam, aren't I? Bringing <laughs> daylight into your lives. Every moment of every day, a little ray of sunshine. The little ray of sunshine has excessively long arms, <laughs> is all I can say. And uh, what I mainly learned, which was really interesting, is that I've got quite big bones. So you can say you're small, medium or large. Um, but really what you're looking at, according to Anna, from all her research and all her years of body mapping, is how big your bones are. Because that affects how clothes sit on you um, and how you feel. So a Hemera is sort of a straight line and it's a little bit easier to fit a Hemera because you just need to create shape, not take any away, <laughs> which is an easier thing. So I've got um, a much broader shoulder than most, which again, I never thought from looking at me, I would have broad shoulders because I'm only five foot two and I see myself as a small person. So I need to build up my hip a little bit so I can do wide leg trousers jackets with hip pockets um i can fit and flare yes um i can do hourglass shaped things little peplums i can do a-line or fuller all of the things i hadn't really considered would be kind of right for me but what i mustn't do is build out shoulder pads and things that make my top half even bigger well not bigger just 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 more broad than it already is in comparison to the rest of my silhouette um, she was saying choose asymmetric details on the waist to create more shape, wear shirts and tops with curved hems, do it the occasional side tuck. When I finished it all, I thought that's really fascinating. You do get all these videos that sort of show what works and, and what doesn't. And the conclusion I drew was that I should just rethink the neckline because I've been wearing all these crew necks and, and I've been wondering why they don't quite suit me, but they just don't suit me because of the length of my neck and that in relation to my shoulders. So I'm more about V-necks and, and drop necks and showing a bit more there. Big jewellery, not small jewellery, works better on someone uh, roughly my shape. Can I have all your small jewellery in that? No, you've got small jewellery in that. No, okay. <laughs> but you might be able to because you're a different shape, aren't you? And actually, we're pretty similar, so I, I would have thought. But obviously, we measure very differently, don't we? Um, and one thing she did note that polar necks are going to just not work. They're going to make my neck look shorter. I always wondered why some polar necks just don't work on me. Doesn't mean I can't wear polar necks. That's not a hard and fast rule. I just wear a softer 
lower one, so sort of right. bigger, lower yes. one. So it was really interesting because it made me just rethink and be very specific about the stuff. And, you know, trousers, ankle trousers really do have to hit your ankle, not a little bit above or below. And also because of my quite large feet and my big bones, because they're quite big bones, my ankles, can't really wear ballet fats. I always wondered why they didn't look right on me. And I thought, oh, it's because my feet are giant, but they should look right. And she said, no, no, it's because you, you, your ankle bone is quite big. So you need to wear things with a tiny heel, like a small loafer, just a small okay, thing like that. So yeah. It was really interesting. What what were you? I think you're not going to like this. You're going to be jealous of this. What's the goddess <laughs> of war known as? I don't know. You're in a grumpy war mood today, young Trish. I can tell you. I am a little <laughs> bit, aren't you? Sorry about that. Yeah. I'll tell you why. My blooming estrogen ran out two days ago in the car. Oh, well, there you are. <laughs> I might be, uh, I might be uh, sort of um, just blaming that. Running on empty. Carry on. Who are you? I'm a sea nymph. Sea nymph. Nyad, the goddess of water. Uh, yes, a Thetis is who I am. And to your point, I learned so much. I feel like I've got to play with it a bit more and delve a bit more into the app. But I just uh, learned so much from initially doing it because even though I have a, I'm a tiny person, I have a medium frame and I've got long arms. I've got longer arms than proportionally to my body, which surprised me actually. And my legs are quite short uh, in proportion. So it's about the proportions, isn't it? And then there was some really good advice about how to make my short legs look a little bit uh, longer, a little bit more balanced. So I need to be wearing slim or crop trousers close to the leg line. Um, so that stretches the appearance um, of the legs and not really wide trousers for me, but I do like wide trousers. So that's a bit of a shame. Also slightly higher waist to lengthen the leg and also uh, a crease on the front of my trousers. I am, you know me, I've even got jeans with creases down the front. So that was obviously a subliminal thing that worked for me, which I quite like. And also doing things like if you match the colour of your shoes, your hosiery and your belts to your trouser leg, that will help elongate as well. So I haven't really thought about that before. You will be pleased to know that my head is in perfect proportion to my body. I can wear any headwear, have any hairstyle at all, apparently, whenever I want. But um, that was just a sort of uh, surface level thing. So I'm going to dig a bit deeper. But what really interested me was that the advice on there about what I shouldn't wear really correlates with the stuff in my wardrobe that I don't wear. So things yes. like little shoes with ankle straps. So I've bought stuff over the years and then I, st I don't wear it. So again, it's because I realise it doesn't suit me, but I haven't thought about it. So now I am thinking about that. Yeah, I think women sometimes resist learning more about fashion because they feel it's a bit of a waste of time. It's a bit shallow. It's a bit self-indulgent. But if you know that, I mean, as Anna says, nine out of 10 women she has seen have said they are not happy with their shape or what they're wearing then why not just spend a bit of time to make sure you're getting it right? And none of these measurements are judgment. No one's got two shorter legs or two wider hips or anything like that. It's just knowing the facts. And I think the bottom line is, if it fits well and it's comfortable, then it looks good and you feel great in it. So you don't need to get wrapped up in trends and things like that, do you? Which I thought is interesting. Of course, stuff all those polo legs are a little bit too big for me on the neck. So they always feel a bit itchy and uncomfortable. You can have those. I can't have the jewellery, but I can have the polo necks. Good. Thank you. It's kind of logical, isn't it? Anyway, so Think Shape app, uh, Anna Berkeley's launched it. All venture capitalists funded it. She's spent ages getting this thing together. It's 
quite an amazing midlife business as well. So what I would say is Anna's going to join the Facebook group. And if you've got some little questions, maybe you can pop them there and she'll be one of our registered experts on the Facebook group. And she does, she's shopping on the high street the whole time. So if you want specific things, she can mention that. And while we are on trends on the high street, young Trish, I've made a little purchase. I thought you might be pleased to know about go on like to recommend a purchase it's a sea salt sea salt cornwall it's a tabard from the cornish based business yeah it's called the parcella cove fair isle knit nice best vintage inspired 75 pounds uh wool and recycled nylon i will put a link on the facebook group nice with a little white shirt have you made any winter buys yet trish well i feel like now is the moment for us to have a little conversation about marks and spencers because isn't it having Hallelujah. having a moment? It's back. It's not just back. It's better than I think it's ever been in terms of its women's wear. We know why, don't we? Yes. Explain. The greatest gift to the high street uh, was Topshop, in my opinion, for many, many years. And Maddie Evans, who was in charge of the style at Topshop and did the buying, she was the creative force behind it, is now the creative force behind M&S Women's Wear. And I cannot tell you how much better, how much better the collections are. And yeah. it really is before someone else snaps her up and she has to go globally around the world worth you popping in and getting stuff. And they really upgraded the Jaeger concession that they had there and they're going to roll that out at a lot more stores now. I just think M&S now, particularly the classics and the separates, is is unbeatable on the high street at the moment. Yeah. Got my eye on a really lovely um, navy shirt with black sequins on it. It's very cool. It's £49.50, and that's kind of from their sort of more premium end as well. Um, and I think that's actually a really nice price to wear. I think that would look very chic with a black trouser. High-waisted for black. me, obviously. Navy in black, that's very sort of fashion chic, isn't it? Do you know what else you would like on the high street at the moment? And it has just sold out, but they will be getting some more in, and it's yeah. so you. You know your love of squirrels, Trish. Oh, yeah. Uniqlo, the J.W. Anderson Uniqlo collaboration. There is the squirrel jumper, which was the big thing at the press day. £34.99 crew neck, load crew neck, so even I can wear it. The squirrel jumper is out. It's like a stylish Christmas jumper. Could be like a Christmas jumper almost, isn't it? It's fabulous. It's cerise grey and dark blue. Oh, right. Okay. We need to hunt the squirrels down, don't we? We need to find a squirrel that we can use. There are two quick other collaborations to mention, should you yes. want to know. Jigsaw and Roxander, which is pricey, spendy, um, but there's lovely silk scarf, which would make a great present. That's out now. Jigsaw, get do it quick because that will go as well. And also H&M, I think it's just about to come out, is the Riban, Paca Riban collaboration. So have a look at that people as well. That's exciting. And then just another brand that uh, is sort of having a bit of a buzzy time at the moment, I think probably because Princess Kate is wearing some of it, is Cezanne, the French brand. Oh my goodness, just have a little look on there. And actually it's not as expensive as I thought it was. It's the most beautiful sort of embroidery, most crochet embroidery blouse, ruffle neck blouse. £100, which I thought not too bad, a little bit spendy. Can I give you a Cezanne tip? Go on. Lots of it on eBay. Oh, really? That's interesting. Second-hand. Lots and lots. So there's some things second-hand. Me and M, Cezanne, eBay, really great condition because it's so seasonal. 
people wear it for one season and they sell it. And we're not, you and I are not that bothered about being on trend every time. But there's some really great Suzanne stuff on eBay. Put a watch on it, people. Exactly. And then I think for good value, and especially velvets, as velvet always is a fabric for autumn and Christmas, uh, Finery London have really good affordable velvet. I saw a really beautiful little navy velvet, short sleeve, beautiful dress. Well, Reese have got some amazing velvet as well. They've got an electric blue velvet suit, which I'm, I just, I do that thing where I'd like a moth. I keep going into it, coming out of it, going into it. Trouser suit. It's a trouser suit. It's really gorgeous, actually. They've got a, a version of it in a dress too. If you'd like to get in touch with Lorraine and I, there are plenty of ways that you can do it. Why not send us an email at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or direct message us at postcardsfrommidlife on Instagram. We always enjoy hearing from you, our lovely listeners, and we'll respond to as many of your queries as we can. And you can also join us on our private Facebook group, which is a forum for women to discuss the issues that affect us as we navigate this midlife. All you have to do to join is answer three of young Trisha's questions to gain access to the group, where you'll find information and friendly support to help you make the most of your second act. I must get a proper job, Trish. It's nostalgia noodle time. That that little ditty can only mean one thing. It also sounds a bit like intermission time. Do you remember intermissions in the cinema? When we were little, you'd go to the cinema. They might have an intermission halfway through the film and get a little ice cream. So you could go to the loo, get some more ice cream, choc ice, get a little choc ice. And even older, I don't want to say that I remember this, there might be an organist hopping up from the floor. Anyway, the reason we go there is because um, uh, I was reading this week that apparently the new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, is so long, three hours and 40 minutes, that some cinemas are reintroducing the intermission. I mean, what do you think of that? I'd be annoyed because everybody will go out and buy more popcorn and do more rustling. Oh, they'll eat it next <laughs> yeah. to you, yeah. <laughs> you'll go into one of those spirals yes. where you'll miss a bit of the film because you'll be so worried about the munching. Yes, yeah. Two things I can uh, add to this conversation is one is everyone is making really, really long films, which I just will not go and see a film that's four hours. I think it's ridiculous, a bit self-indulgent. Um, and the second thing is my 12-year-old is obsessed with these great big Marvel films. She loves a superhero and I'd had a bit of enough of this. And I said, Mabel, why don't we watch a female superhero? Because you literally don't see them anywhere in any of the big blockbusters. Let's watch Alien because Ripley is probably your classic female hero oh, yes. of all time. All those children that were named Ripley, when they, all those girls born around that time. I don't know if you've tried to watch Alien recently, Ridley Scott. Not recently. It is the slowest moving. <laughs> there is one scene. One scene we all remember. Yeah. That grabs your attention and there's a bit of a cat. To, to get your head around. She's great in it, obviously, Sigourney Weaver, but good God, it goes on for such a long time. And it's, even, it's not even actually a particularly long film. I just think it's so weird that we grew up with these films that move so slowly, even the action films, whereas now something happens every 30 seconds. We got halfway through and Mabel said, I just can't watch it anymore, Mum, it's so slow. Oh, no, that is a shame. So we could have done with an intermission for that. Yeah, you could have done indeed. Well, intermissions and endings, because here we are at the end of this week's show. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. All of our health info, our fashion info, our booze or not booze info. 
we're going to go and have a cocktail, actually, aren't we? I think so. We should yes. do, yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.